0: Hey, Feminist Frequency fans. I just want to let you know about a new project that we just launched. It's called the Games and Online Harassment Hotline, and it is an emotional support resource for people who make and play games. So please check it out. You can find out more at gameshotline.org. I like that this movie holds up, that it still has a lot of value, and that, um, well, I'm sad that it's not a hilarious relic of the past. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and I'm joined today by two women who are just waiting to clock out so they can go get a drink and plot how to overthrow their boss. Carolyn Pettit.
1: Get a drink or maybe smoke some pot. Oh, yeah. That's good, too. Uh,
0: And (laughs) Ebony Adams.
1: (laughs) Definitely here for the plot to overthrow the boss.
0: But Carolyn, (laughs) did your son give you a joint? And you just happen to have it in your purse that day?
1: (laughs) We'll talk. We'll talk about that. I want to talk about that. Yeah, this is a bonus.
0: Yeah, this is the bonus. All right. This week, y'all, we're going to be talking about the landmark 1980 comedy about sexism in the workplace, 9 to 5. Stay tuned. Hello, friends. Hey. Hello. How hot is it for everybody? Ass hot. I feel like everyone I've talked to today in various parts of the world are just like it's fucking hot. So I thought I would uh, yeah. share that with everybody. Um, for no summer, reason. summer, huh? Yeah.
2: No, it's am I right? It, sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I'm spending a significant portion of you know my salary on um, the AC bill, and you know what? It's just gonna have to be what it is. Cause woo, the valet. It's hot. hot.
0: Well, also, if you're on camera, like, regularly, as as Mm -hmm. you and I both are, you're just like, yeah, I don't want to be, like, a sweaty, sloppy mess constantly.
2: Not a sweaty, sloppy mess. Um, Sloppy, listen, people get what they get, okay? It's Zoom. We're under quarantine. The world is burning. So, if I'm wearing my Macho Man Randy Savage t-shirt, you're just going to have to deal, But I will not be dewy on camera. I think you'll get
0: more fans. You will be dewy on camera. Isn't that a look, though? Isn't Uh, isn't that like a look? Some people can pull
2: it off. Not me. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I just look washed out. This is riveting. Yes.
0: Tune tune into the bonus where Ebony gives us makeup (laughs) tips.
2: (laughs) We're going to talk about sweating. We're going to talk about pickles. We're going to talk about drinking water. So many pickles. I think that we just
0: pickles are now the thing. Okay, let's talk about this movie, shall we? Yes, because it is fantastic. (laughs) Because I'm just going to ramble about nothing for an hour, and then the podcast will be over, and we wouldn't have even talked about this fucking movie. Y'all, 9 to 5. All right. Mm -hmm. The idea for 9 to 5 originated when Jane Fonda, one of the film's producers and stars, heard stories being shared by actual working women about their experiences in the workplace. Originally envisioned as a drama, 9to5 evolved into a comedy in part out of concerns that the drama might have seemed too preachy to audiences. Today, some 40 years after the film's release, it's impressive how true 9to5's depictions of institutionalized sexism in the workplace remains. A testament both to the film's insights into these issues and to how little has changed since then. Y'all, this movie. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Um, I was really impressed uh, watch so I mean I probably had seen it before, but it's been a very very long time. So rewatching it for this podcast, and certainly much more steeped in issues of you know uh, in issues of, of sexism and and institutional you know oppression and all of that now than I would have been when I saw it when I was much younger. I was like really impressed by particularly the early scenes in the film and how how accurate they are at almost kind of cataloging the ways in which um, uh, sexism in the workplace, you know, often can function, but, and also, and also it's depiction of women trying their damnedest to navigate that when Mm -hmm. they don't hold any of the power in that situation. So you have, um, you know, or very early on these scenes with, um, so first of all, Dabney Coleman as the boss. So Dabney Coleman, I think was like, the quintessential administrative scumbag in movies of the <laughs> 1980s like he uh-huh. he kind of went on to become almost just like a symbol for this kind of character. <laughs> like you, you would cast what him a in a film and people would cast. immediately know like, Oh, he's this fucking asshole. It, like it's like a William Atherton, right? Like yeah. there were character actors in the eighties yeah. where you were like, I and, know precisely what I'm getting. And it wasn't even, it wasn't always like about sexism, but there was always, or, or usually that, you know, like if he shows up in war games, it's like, Oh, you know, you, you know that he's like some, still a prick of one variety or another. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like, like, So you have him, like, perfectly cast or very effective in that role. And then, of course, you have Dolly Parton, like, immediately just a star on the screen, like, in her first Mm -hmm. role here as um, as, uh, Doralee Doralee. Rhodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, like, the way in which... So you have uh, Franklin, you know, the boss, uh, doing all these things, like, trying to... Like, giving her unwanted gifts, right? And, like, the way in which she responds to that it's like she says thank you but like she's clearly trying to like do it in this understated way so as to to not like like because you know she 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 doesn't want to rock the boat right because she she mm-hmm. needs her job and everything but she doesn't want to like a- encourage him or egg him on in any way and she totally knows exactly what he's doing but but what can she do about it nothing and um like there's just so much of that in the early goings of this film all these ways in which he you know he um talks about like being a team player as a way of like trying to get um uh, the Lily Tomlin character to you know do things that are not in her job description buy gifts for his wife he says but actually for for Doralee um just like like so many of these kind of manipulative behaviors just come so naturally and are so normalized when they're performed by men in these positions of power. And I also really liked that on the, you know, sort of as a companion to this, we do at least initially see the ways in which women like um, before there's like solidarity with Doralee and understanding, like there is this unfortunate period where um, rather than blaming like the boss um, right. Like like other women kind of ostracize Doralee and like view her as somebody who's like she's the one being manipulative mm-hmm. or like, you know, using her um her looks to to get ahead or whatever when she when she is not like inviting this at all. But she's just trying her damnedest to to navigate these these entirely unwanted like um, advances in this very difficult position she's been put in.
2: Yeah, so this movie has been a favorite of mine forever, but like you, Carol, I hadn't seen it in years, maybe decades. And so I was prepared on a recent rewatch to, you know, kind of hold my breath, excuse me, you know, and I anticipated that it would not be as sophisticated, you know, in its critique by today's standards, as you know, as I would like, right? But like you i was incre- i was so impressed and it, the film is so astute in a lot of ways that aren't immediately apparent because it is also very funny like it's it's a comedy you know um and so you know while we're laughing at franklin hart just being a total shit bag you know the ways that it really accurately portrays like workplace politics and the ways in which certain kinds of labor are valued over other kinds of labor read in this atmosphere and in corporate culture, in particular men's labor, which is really like the kind of like top managerial strategy, not actually doing any of the work, but being the overseer is valued more both financially and, you know, status wise over the people who are actually doing the labor to keep a company running. Uh Like it's incredibly sophisticated. And I also, I remember, you know, I, that, like, at the end of the film, and we'll get there, but at the end of the film, you know, when we see, like, the changes that um Dorley and Judy and Violet have made to improve um, the corporate culture, you know, it's not just like, oh... Um, this one bad boss has been taken out of the place. And now the, the environment is not toxic. It's that they have done things like systematically from the ground up. Like there's shift work. There's, you know, job sharing. There's disabled people working in the job now, you know, like the whole environment has changed. So like the, the understanding that it's not just getting rid of like one person. Um, that will solve an issue but really there has to be like kind of a structural change to the way we think about work especially because most of the people there are women was fantastic i was like yo i can't believe this is 1980
0: i can i can (laughs) believe it's 1980 and this is why um as i was watching it i was like this is so obviously deeply rooted in the second wave Uh, feminist movement yes and like Mm -hmm. 1980 is and i understand that the defining the feminist movement in these in waves is is complicated and messy and um not everyone loves it so just acknowledging that um (laughs) whatever it's it's, you know but like it's still a a, a convenient shorthand for this kind of thing um 1980 is like as the second wave feminist movement is sort of like petering out to some degree, right? Like the early eighties was when it started petering out. And when we started to see, um, a little more integration and a little more backlash, uh, like some integration into the issues that, that women were bringing up mostly white women, but not exclusively, um, at this time. And also, um, um, backlash against those things, right? We start getting into the Reagan and Bush era of, of the U.S. at least. So I, this makes a ton of sense for me that it came out in 1980 because it's late enough into the feminist movement that's like pretty, pretty mainstream at this point. And it's um, early enough before it starts fizzling out into like really conservative politics. The ideas that well, women have already gotten all the things that they need now, and so it's fine, right? Which is which is how we've moved into the '90s and the early 2000s.
2: Yeah, I see what you're saying, but I guess for me, um, that the film still offers pretty um, like radical potential in the ways that, like you know, Judy Burnley exists as a as a leader and the like coalition of women that she develops um that's, you know, pretty insistently like non hierarchical, even though she's been there longer, you know, she's a supervisor, etc. Like for me, there is more. I, I, I get
0: I'm not saying it, that it the seems- contents isn't surprising um to mm-hmm. be in Hollywood at all ever. Um I just think that if it's gonna if this movie was gonna happen, it was gonna happen in that particular time capsule moment. Mm-hmm. With yeah, no, with stars, I see what you're saying. Like,
2: right. I certainly don't see this coming in like 1985. Yeah, totally. And and mm-hmm. the
0: thing is that um, um, Jane Fonda led this. It was Jane Fonda's mm-hmm. idea, and she led it. And so they like the, Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda and Dolly Parton were all stars at mm-hmm. this point in time. If I well, I'm- yeah,
1: yes. Though with the caveat that this was Dolly Parton's first film role, she was a huge right. m- music like music star. Totally. Um, yes.
0: Yeah. So so and I ebony, I don't think we actually disagree. I just think that the context of the moment mm-hmm. in time is really interesting for like how this
2: particular film with these people actually got made, you know? Uh, yeah, no, I would love to 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 talk more about that, not on this particular podcast, um, but about like workplace dramas and comedies like that sort of, you know, existed in a rough bubble of say like 76 to 86, you know, I mean, because we I think next like, episode, <laughs> I know, but like, <laughs> you know, so that. you have like Tootsie, you know, and nine to five or, you know, normal Ray or whatever. Like, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right to point to like there being a, um, a, a kind of seismic shift that, that happens once we become more fully entrenched in the, the, um, first Reagan era, you know and,
0: um yeah and i think too cuz i want to be like i'm surprised like along with you i want to be like i'm surprised at how systemic the understanding was in this comedy right mm-hmm. that it was like these institu like like the the institutionalization of it was very present in how the film was talked about because mm-hmm. um if if nowhere else because of the solutions that they implemented that made it a better workplace mm-hmm. and so um i feel like the, in I think that the feminist movement in that moment was definitely talking about institutional oppression, mm-hmm. um, but so much of our media even today doesn't recognize that, right? Like, right. we'll talk about The Wire as a quintessential example of some of the first, like, in-depth institutional, lo- like, looks into policing and mm-hmm. uh, poverty and race and and mm-hmm. and drugs and all of that, right? And that was, like, heralded as— you know, this incredible film that actually, like, d- dived into institutional issues. But uh, show, sorry, it wasn't a film. Um, but I think we 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 don't get a lot of that. We still don't get a lot of that.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I do think it's important that, like, the writer of 9 to 5 is a woman, Patricia Resnick, right? You know, I think, like... I, I, well, that's a thing. I want Carolyn to
0: speak, but I, I just read mm-hmm. this article about how
2: she was, like, basically pushed out
0: of that role, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I think is ironic. Um,
1: well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I wanted to... Uh, to to go back to um, the 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 ways the things that this film catalogs that that um, that yes it's so much a product of that particular time as a film of uh, um, that the very early nineteen eighties and yet and yet how frustrating it is that so so much of what we see in this film still exists or still is very commonplace in the workplace today and uh, like one thing too that um, that it, it is just like so. Uh, so common um, that happens in this film is the way in which the, you know, in this case, the Dabney Coleman character, but, you know, men in power... Take credit for right, the ideas uh-huh. of women in the workplace right, and you, you see that happen kind of a, a few times in this film where um, where uh, I th- you know I think it's often like the Lily Tomlin character will have an idea for something that they can do implement to make things more uh, uh, just more efficient or just like better all around for everyone and you and, and the You know, either the Dabney Coleman character just takes the credit or the credit is just kind of, like, assumed to be his and kind of given to him um, uh, just out of, of, uh, you know, practice. And, and like, you know, like, it's still just so common, you know, in meetings for—you know, a woman might voice an idea— And people will be like, eh, whatever. And then, like, five minutes later, a man will reword the exact same idea, uh, you know. And people will be like, oh, wow, yeah, that's great, brilliant idea. Like, just that perception, almost, uh, of when ideas come from men, they're more legitimate, they're more practical, they're more worthy of being put into practice or worthy of being considered. Just all of that, like, that was something, too, that I I thought was— um, I mean, really great, you- and also so frustrating that forty years later, like <laughs> right. we haven't made we have feel we yeah. barely made an inch uh, in in dealing with with that with those. I issues. was just
0: about to I was just about to ask both of you like how you feel watching this, uh, and
2: and it like how how little how little has changed yeah. really? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, one of the things like going back to the the actual like <clears throat> fabric of the the office after um. Judy and Violet and Dorley have made their changes is that I just, I kept thinking like if this film were made in like 2015 or even like 2005, the changes that would have been made would have been so cosmetic and it would have been things that we were absolutely in love with for a period. So it's like, you know, how can you actually stay on the job longer? So we'll put like free drinks in the break room. There'll be a foosball table, you know, like there'll be, you know, young people skateboarding through the office, but it's all in service of making work, everything to you. One of the other things I loved about this film is like, it's insistence that this job was just a job for them. Like, this is my job. This is what I do to, you know, pay my bills, feed my family. But I have a life outside of this. Um, and this job is not my everything, nor should it be. You know, there's a real way in which so much of our media insists upon, like, our work being our identity these days. And we're supposed to love it. You know, we're supposed to absolutely love it.
1: Yeah, there was for me and, and like... This is, I I acknowledge that this is kind of twisted and weird, but there was, for me, a way in which there was a, a kind of nostalgia for mm-hmm. the workplace that this film depicts in the sense that, so we all know that millennials are facing just, uh, I mean, you know, a future that's so economically uncertain. Like, jobs like the ones seen in this film barely exist anymore. Right now yeah. it's all about... The gig economy, the hustle economy, I personally, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up, you know, going like whatever, I, you know, in high school, you know, I went to college or whatever. In high school, I did well, well enough on all my standardized tests. I figured, oh, there will always be some like nine to five kind of jobs that I can get and do and come home and, you know, and I'll make an- enough money to get by and I'll be fine. And, like, that, as, as fucked up as all the power dynamics and everything within that system are, and as much as, no doubt, these people weren't being paid what they were worth and all of that, there is still that, like, sense of, like, those kinds of jobs just don't hardly exist anymore. And I, mm-hmm. like, and I and so many people have no idea what the fuck we're going to do for the yeah. rest of our lives to even just stay financially afloat. So it's weird, like, it's weird, like, that well, the how things have changed like the ways in which things have changed uh, in in a lot of ways for the worse in terms of just like what, like what the job, what the employment landscape looks like for Americans right now. Um, So there was that, like that was this, that was a reaction that I had to this film of like, God, I don't want the, I don't want to deal with all the bullshit, obviously that these people are having to deal with. And yet like, but where, are the jobs that I, you can just go and do a thing and and you know and you'll be okay and, and mm-hmm. it's just your job and it's not, you know, and that's it. Like I haven't like those they've largely evaporated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There there's something interesting about all that, um, and tied with the the um the Jane Fonda character. Um about so so what am I trying to say? There's this idea, there's this notion that women fought to to be white women fought to work, right? And to not be housewives. And um and that like this is our fault. Right? Like that the like the two mm-hmm. household um incomes that like you can't just have a stay-at-home parent, like that it's women's fault for trying to work and that mm-hmm. there's this whole this whole idea of like, well, well, I can't even choose to be a housewife anymore. I can't even choose to stay at home because we can't afford it and that women's influx into the economy in certain ways like created this beast, right? I am I, I'm speaking yeah. things that you both have heard, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think that there's um there's something interesting about looking at the Jane Fonda character for that moment in time because she represents like a A very, like, a a thing that doesn't really exist anymore in a lot of ways, right? Her husband left her for his secretary, and she's never worked before, but she needs money, and so she goes and gets this job, right? Which you can't do now, as Carolyn has has pointed out. Like, no education, no experience. She just lands this job, right? Um, And— I I think there's some, I don't know, I don't know what point I'm trying to make. I just think that there are like, there are these facts that line up that make this particular representation really interesting in, as it relates to how we don't have that anymore. We don't Mm -hmm. have those options anymore. And the idea of, of women fighting for their right to choose to work, (laughs) right. Or to choose to work in, in places that respect them and that, um, grant them, safety and security and all of that it w- wasn't to like then get stuck. The idea wasn't then to get stuck in this grind, right? The idea was that we should have all the same freedoms and liberties that men have had and therefore such and such, right? I think that there, there's a, um, an underlying current, uh, when we reflect back on this film about that particular issue.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um. yeah it was so, it was so interesting to me to watch this and I got such Warm fuzzies, seeing them type on those old uh, typewriters. My mom was um, a secretary for, or in some version, you know, like of an administrative um, professional for her entire career. Often working two jobs, and I just remember her working on those kinds of typewriters. I remember like the the plastic cover that you would pull um, over them, and yeah, just going back to this notion of like, you know, your job being separate from your life. And you know, she worked so hard. And yet there was a distinction between her work life and her home life. The the idea that like her boss would be emailing her at nine PM about something would have blown her mind. She would it would have been completely out of the realm of possibility. The idea of like taking that home, you know, we have entirely lost that. We've we've entirely lost it.
1: I just want to touch on something that I just find amusing about this film. And and that surprised me uh, when I was watching it, um, which is that which is that um, the characters do smoke pot in this film. Like I, I that kind of blindsided me like, wow, a Mm -hmm. comedy in 1980, like a mainstream comedy that was very, very successful had that. And um, I bring it up mainly just to share this little anecdote that I found. So kind of delightful, which is just from something I saw on the Wikipedia page. Um, so, uh, this is, I'm reading directly from the Wikipedia page right now. Ronald Reagan wrote in his presidential diary that he and his wife, Nancy, watched the film on Valentine's Day, 1981. He wrote, quote, <laughs> quote, so this Sorry. is quote from his, from his diary, uh, little Ronald, Ronald Reagan writing in his little presidential diary, funny, but one scene made me mad, a truly funny scene if the three gals had played getting drunk, but no, they had to get stoned on pot. It was an endorsement of pot smoking for any young person who sees the picture.
0: Oh, that's so. adorable. And you know what? It yeah.
1: was. They made it look so fun, so and what they're I, right.
0: What I forgot about the movie, because I feel like I had seen it, like- when we talked about watching it, I was like, Oh, I can picture the whole movie in my head. So I must've seen it recently. I completely forgot about all of the, uh, the fantasy murders. Mm. Like (laughs) each of them. like I was like, Oh my God, they like play out every, and they like, they, they built the scenes (laughs) of, Mm -hmm. of every specific detail on how each woman would take out their boss. And it was like, it was so delightful and unexpected and really charming and set the stage in such a beautiful way for what they were about to do. It's so I,
2: funny. It was so I good. I do wonder, like, I don't remember, I just remember liking this movie when I was a kid, you know, but I was obviously very young and I, I just, I wish I could access, you know, how I understood it, um, Oh yeah.
0: I've wondered you know, that like, a lot. As a five yeah. year
2: old. You know, like totally. what did I think was going on? Absolutely.
0: So there's an um an interview in Rolling Stone uh from um 2015 when the movie turned 35, and it interviews the screenwriter, Patricia Resnick. Mm-hmm. And like that that was what I was alluding to earlier. Her talking about how she wrote this screenplay um that she got she she talks about what it was like to work as a screenwriter, as a woman in that time, and also today. Um, Mm -hmm. But she talked about how she kind of got pushed out. Like, she wrote the screenplay, and then the director came in and said, that's it. You can visit the set once, and that's it. And I'm going to rewrite this movie. Hmm. And, like, I thought it was really – hearing her talk about that experience this many years later and what the movie was about, like, Mm -hmm. it – Today, if this movie came out and it was directed by a dude, we'd all be like, "Uh, really?" Right. <laughs> right? And at the time, it probably was how it got made, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Oh right? yeah. So
1: it's it's kind of funny how that the the production of the film in some ways Reproduces, has elements yeah. of the sexism that the film itself is uh, ostensibly so so critical of. So um, that's all- so much better than me. <laughs> that was perfect. Well, I, I also think we we should acknowledge like that there are some. You know some uh, some uh, elements of the film that have not aged well, or that were proud that were mm-hmm. not cool at the time either. But um, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, um, at the end of the film, we get a little update on what's happened with to each yeah. character, and oh. the, the Dabney Coleman character's fate. Uh, so he gets transferred to some position in Brazil, like at the end of the movie, right? But then the little title card at the end that tells us what happened to him is that he was like abducted. Um, He's uh, abducted by a tribe of Amazons and never heard from again. Yeah, obviously that was bad. some like very stereotypical, you mm-hmm. know, racist stuff happening there. And um, there's, you know, there's also a joke that Dolly Parton's character makes at one point where she, to, to Frank, where she's, you know, she has a gun and she says like that she would turn him from a, a rooster to a hen, which I was like, eh. mm-hmm. um, but yep. you know, eh, but really like just overall too. I think, I, you know, as, as Anita alluded to, I think by, with the second wave stuff, it is a very, it is a very white film. And it, it there are ways in which I think um, like we do see, like when we see a black working woman, like she mm-hmm. is working at the, the hospital where some hijinks happen, but I don't know. It's, it's like, I, I feel like the film, through shots like that, like acknowledges that there are racialized tears to mm-hmm. labor as well as as gendered tears to labor. But it it's not but as critical as it is of the gendered tears that exist in labor, it's not at all like it doesn't it doesn't really spare a thought or a remark for the racialized tears that exist no i
2: i think like it's definitely more concerned with you know pink collar and yeah. uh, white collar work than than the working class so you know do you, you we do have women of color who work in the office with yes, um, yes you know violet and judy in particular um the the latina whose name i'm blanking but you know who was initially um fired and then you know is brought back um but you know she's she's having trouble like managing childcare and whatever um but yeah it's very much like you know women of a certain class are included um in this critique but women you know outside of this class are just gonna have to struggle through with whatever you Mm. know they have and i mean the there's also the fact that you know and i think one of you mentioned this at the top um dora lee is allowed to enter into the you know female fellowship once it's understood that she has not been heart's lover, that he has in fact been lying. The issue is not, you know, like it's as if, you know, like this, the the feminism that we have, you know, is only available once it's proved that you are, have not been engaging in the kind of sexual activity or with, you know, an inappropriate partner um, that we judge inappropriate. But once it's proved that you haven't behaved in that way, we can you can be accepted. And so it's one thing that, you know, I'm, absolutely did not think about when i was five watching this movie (laughs) but as an 87 year old watching this movie it's like it's kind of fucked up like okay think what you want about you know a relationship between dora lee and you know messed up old franklin hart but he ultimately is the bad guy here none of their vitriol should have been directed at dora lee and yet she is ostracized like she is very alone it's one of the reasons why it's so hard for her to deal with the you know exploitation she's experiencing from him it's because she literally has no allies On that staff among people who should be her allies they know what a fuckhead he is and yet somehow she you know is included you know in the kind of like contempt they have for him you know and it's like "Eh."
0: and with um like acknowledging what you just said i agree with um that is so in like I I do like that they did that. Like, I do like mm-hmm. that the, the women had to learn that, like, fighting against each other is not useful here. And that kind mm-hmm. of judgment is not – which, again, is undermined by everything Ebony said. But, like, we still do have this sense of, like, competition between women, right, yeah. mm-hmm. in in all of these messed up ways. And, and
1: yeah. And, uh, and, I mean, I like that the film also has the character judgment. of – I, I like that the film also has the character of Roz, who yeah. is who is that that woman? You know that woman who does exist. You know such women do exist. Who who finds like meaning or value in in aiding patriarchy almost, or in like playing into the the, the power roles that that exist, right? Like she she likes um, you know uh, reinforcing the the oppressive rules of the workplace. She likes, you know, helping Franklin. I mean, obviously she, she is perhaps like she is not, she is exempt from, from some of Franklin's abuses, but, um, but still like, you know, the way that she says things like we have to clamp down on any, any signs of unionization or whatever. Like I just Mm. love, I like that the film, uh, I like that, that, that there is a character like that in this film. I also um, found it really interesting that in the end, the, the, so the, the chairman of the board, um, you know, as he comes and he's praising all these things that have been implemented. He, he says, so one of the things that, um, that were, were implemented by the, by our, our team of heroes is is, like equal pay for equal work. Right. And and so the chairman of the board is praising all these things that have been, that have been added, but he's like, Oh, that that's gotta go. Like, so so (laughs) even in this, even in this, like, zany, wish-fulfillment kind of comedy uh, film, you know, which it does veer into that kind of zany territory at a certain point, Um, it still has that bit of realism <laughs> of, like, that's too far. Like, you can't... Right. You can't... Like, we're not ready for that. Like, obviously, the viewer should recognize that that would be just and right and fair, but the powers that be, you know, whatever headway you may make, they will still resist uh, these kinds of these kinds of advances. And boy... I mean, you know, the wage gap remains an extremely real thing that exists.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: What did you all think of the wife character of Franklin's wife? Uh, (sighs) She's or nothing. You may not have thought anything.
1: I don't know. Um, I guess I
2: thought that I appreciate it. If appreciate is the word I want, which it isn't. Um, She's obviously, you know, like. Uh, portrayed as you know being very dim and oblivious to you know her husband's um, peccadillos, but I liked that they could have gone another way. Like if they were going to present you know a kind of two dimensional character, they could have leaned into like her being a shrewish character and being very suspicious of <laughs> Dora Lee, you know. And I appreciated that they didn't go that route. Instead, as I said, she's played very dim, and so she's just. Mm she's so loving she's so like she's so friendly to doralee you know in a way that doralee is not getting from her coworkers, workers at least initially but i mean i think she's she's pretty uh, much a non-entity in uh in the film uh, I,
1: I i will say I, I i was frustrated with doralee's husband the the brief mm-hmm. scene we get with him because she like when when she tries to kind of talk to her husband about what's going on in the workplace his his ba- his response basically is where's where's your smile Doralee? smile yeah, for me totally. <laughs> and it's like dude just like she f- listen to her why don't you just actually listen to her uh that i mean so it was like it, you know it was perhaps accurate or or you know there was a ring of truth to it but i didn't feel like the film was you know, was presenting that as a problem. When to me, like that was a problem. Like, dude, just actually listen to what, listen and to invalidate her experiences and her frustration with them.
0: It was so Mm -hmm. frustrating. He was basically like, it's fine. We'll just fuck and you'll feel better. Right. Yeah. Basically. That was basically Basically. what that scene was. Yeah. 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 (sighs) All right. We did it. Yeah. We talked about a movie. I, I, um, uh, on a larger scale, like, it is nice to see movies that hold up. Like, there are, there are cringe, like, there's definitely cringy moments that Carolyn brought up, um, but there are a few and far between in this movie, and so I think that, like, there's always this tension when you go back and watch your, like, faves from the 80s <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I like that this movie holds up, that it still has a lot of value, and that, um, well, I'm sad that it's not a hilarious relic of the past. But
2: as (laughs) you wanted it to be
0: more shitty. No, no. I'm sad that like we have not come that far enough that it's like, wow, man, what were the issues they were dealing with back then? Jeez. You know, now we're like, oh God, like, (laughs) um, but, uh, it's nice that like, I'm always heartened when I see films from, from eras gone by that I can still enjoy without too much. Like, oh God, seriously. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, 9 to 5, y'all. If you haven't seen it, I think we all are in the go-watch Go, go watch it. Yeah, boat. it's a fun watch. Uh, apparently, um, uh, recently there was talk of making a sequel with the cast, um, Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton, but that got scrapped, which I'm kind of thankful for. But I think they're, they were talking about, like, doing something else, and I saw a rumor that um, – so Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin are the stars of Grace and Frankie, which is a Netflix mm-hmm. show that I've talked about on the podcast before that I enjoy. And, like, I think there was talk of Dolly Parton, like – having the reunion on that show, which I think would be really fun. So I don't know, but it would be, it would be, I think really delightful to see the three of them on screen again.
1: Absolutely. I would love it. I'm here for it.
0: All right, y'all, we will be right back with our weekly freakouts. So I mentioned earlier that we just launched the Games and Online Harassment Hotline, and I want to tell you just a little bit more about it. Um, the Games and Online Harassment Hotline is an emotional support resource for people who make and play games. What does that mean? It means that if you are a uh, someone who works in the industry, if you are a competitor, a streamer, you work in the press, you're a fan, you play games for fun, you're my mom playing Candy Crush at home, this hotline is for you. And we are providing emotional support on all kinds of issues, whatever it is that you feel like you need to talk to someone confidentially and anonymously about. So that could be depression or isolation. Maybe you're feeling lonely. Um, Maybe you are overworked and and burnt out. Maybe you're dealing with abuse or online harassment. The hotline is here for you. So please... please take a look at our website, gameshotline.org, and you can see our hours and how to connect with us. It's only available in the U.S. Sorry, everybody else. That is how, unfortunately, this technology works. Um, But we're really, really excited to launch this new resource uh, for folks um, and start to create more space for people to talk about their feelings, engage with their feelings, um, and maybe – You can help us spread the word and let other people know. So that's gameshotline.org. Okay, everyone. You know what the drill is. We're going to talk about some things and they might thrill us. They might move us. They might upset us or they might infuriate us or they might be neutral. Not that we ever really talk about
2: neutral things, but you know, you know the drill.
0: Hey, Ebony. Mm -hmm. What do you got?
2: Uh, So I am reading The Deep by River Solomon. Um, Hardcore listeners may remember that I geeked the fuck out over um, their novel, An Unkindness of Ghosts, last year. It was a book that absolutely wrecked me. If you have not read it, um, you're going to be kicked out of Ebony Club. Your (laughs) resignation papers (laughs) will be in the mail Which you won't receive because the USPS is being systematically dismantled. But anyway, River Solomon is the kind of writer that makes you, makes me literally like put my pen down, you know? Because I think I have never read a sentence like this. There are some people who are, they are sculptors with language, and River Solomon absolutely. Is this. So I'm just gonna uh read the because I- I'm reading it, but I'm taking um taking it so slowly because it's a novella. So normally I would rip through this, but I don't want it to end. I'm so in love with this. So I'm just gonna read real quick. Um and this came out, I wanna say, earlier this year, um, won a lambda literary science fiction award. So the um the synopsis is this. The water-breathing descendants of African slave women tossed overboard have built their own underwater society Oof. and must reclaim the memories of their past to shape their future in this brilliantly imaginative novella inspired by the Hugo Award-winning excuse me Hugo Award-nominated song "The Deep" from david Diggs rap group, rap group clipping. Um,
1: wow! What it a is concept that's amazing, right?
2: Like it is, it is mind blowing. It is immersive in the way that you sink into the language and the um, the feeling of this book in the same way that yetu the main character sinks into the memories of you know the ancestors it is a beautiful book um. And like I said, I'm taking it as, as slowly as I can, savoring it. But that is what I am freaking out about. The Deep by River Solomon. I can't recommend this writer enough. Like, y'all, yo, there are people out there who I'm in awe of their talent. I just, I can't get enough.
0: That I, I'm sold. <laughs> yeah, please. Anita, 100%. I need hundred percent.
2: Read it and then let's talk about it. Yeah, totally. Um,
0: Carolyn, what do you got?
1: Uh, I am going to talk about um, the HBO miniseries. Um, I know this much is true. Um, <laughs> all right. Well.
0: I, no, well. I've, I've, I'm not. I haven't finished watching it, but I'm close to finishing it. But okay. please continue. I just so, needed to make noise.
1: Yeah. So Mark Ruffalo is is one of my absolute favorite actors. He has been ever since I saw him in a film called You Can Count on Me, which is absolutely one of the quintessential formative Caro movies. Um, mm-hmm. It's him and Laura Linney as a brother and sister, and like immediately when I saw that film, like I'm like, wow, this is one of the most exciting y- young actors to come along in in like a really long time. But part of what I've always loved about Mark Ruffalo. Is that is his capacity for warmth? I mean, that is what makes him work so well as like Bruce, you know, Banner in the uh, Avengers movies. Is that is is that there's this poignant even when he's sad, like there's a warmth to him at his core that you just like you just feel that in him. And so, so this perform this performance in this fucking miniseries, y'all, holy mm-hmm. shit! Like it is a so Mark Ruffalo plays twin brothers named Dominic and Thomas Birdsey. Um, Thomas it has, is like a para- paranoid schizo- schizophrenic. The main character is definitely Dominic Birdsey, the brother who ha- has, throughout his entire life, basically, it, t- you know, kind of had to take care of Thomas, manage Thomas, who has kind of looked out for Thomas. And anyway, um, like, so this is a very different performance uh, in a lot of ways from, from, like so much so many of Ralph Lowe's characters because because that warmth that I always find so appealing in him here mm-hmm. it's it's kind of almost it's invisible or it's almost invisible but it's because Dominic as a character has had to build such a shield around himself emotionally because his life has just been so relentlessly like unstable and traumatic and trying and just like just, you know, never easy, never predictable, never safe. And um, and so you feel this energy radiating around like this barrier, this force field or, or that, that Dominic has kind of built around himself that that kind of repels people almost. And so, you know, um, I found it very psychologically and emotionally True, You know, I, I, there is mm-hmm. a review that I, I saw that called this, the miniseries, quote, overwhelming in its self-indulgent trauma. And personally, like, obviously, it's a fair critique. It's valid. I personally disagree with it strongly. I feel like, you know, having grown up in a household where there was violence and upheaval and unpredictability from, you know, multiple... People and nothing was safe or stable ever. Like, I felt like this ranks more true about these kinds of family dynamics than almost anything that I've ever seen. Like it, 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 obviously like my experiences are not the same as Dominic's, but, but there's a a truth at their core that I thought was extraordinary. The it's set in like the early 1990s and the production design on this is incredible. Like it really looks like something that was almost shot in the early 1990s. It doesn't have that hmm. period piece kind of, um, Uh, glossiness of like, we were making it look like it's from this period, but it's not really like, no, there's a quality Mm -hmm. here where it really feels like it, like it, like it's set in that time period. Um, It's also a story about generations of misogynist hatred and patriarchal entitlement because Dominic Mm. looks into his grandfather who came from Sicily and who was just the most like colossal asshole, you know, just the most like entitled misogynistic man, you could imagine. And, and his behavior had repercussions that have, that have, you know, passed down through the generation. So it's about those kinds of legacies. Um, it does, unfortunately, I think like a lot, like so many stories, it like acknowledges race and racist issues, but does so in that way where it still centers the white people, you know, and, um, like, obviously that's kind of frustrating. Um, uh, the real revelation for me though, in in this series, maybe Rosie O'Donnell as Hmm. Lisa Sheffer, a social worker who, um, I mean, she is just, oh God, she's amazing in this. Uh, She, I believe she is just that kind of tough as nails, but, but you, you can see that the toughness that she exudes comes from like, like wanting to be a great, a good advocate for her patients and, and for the people that Mm -hmm. she comes in contact with and that she cares for. but, like the system is what it is and and you can only do so much and you have to like live with that reality and so you you um but you know you, I don't know there's something about her kindness in this like it's that it's that strong kindness that's kindness that's like that's uh, it's it's um I don't, obviously I'm, I'm struggling for the words I, right now, but it's, it's, I
0: actually, I totally agree with you, Carolyn. I, I mm-hmm. was really, I, when Rosie O'Donnell comes on screen, I was like, wait, what? I was not expecting yeah. that. And mm-hmm. her, I, what you're saying is like, she, she, she's weathered. Yes. She's super weathered and super uh, burnt out and yeah. worn mm-hmm. down by this system where she can't really help people, but she's like, when, still wants to. And yes. you can see that.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and something about like, like so that just brings out my feelings of tenderness. I see her strength in in this system that has weathered her down but but where she still mm. has that ethic of wanting to do right by her patients and it's just like oh my god, I just I just love this woman. I just you know, wow. I just did- Um anyway, uh I- yes, it is a it is an ordeal. It is, you know, it is relentless and it's kind of it is not a fun watch. It is not lighthearted. It is not easy. But um, but I think it's very psychologically and emotionally true in, in so many ways, and in ways that we we don't often get in in even stories about like dysfunctional families and and mm-hmm. and and abuse and and trauma. Um. So and Mark Ruffalo is is in my view just staggeringly good. Um. In in you know as Dominic, so um. You know, not a not a lighthearted watch. Once again, I'm on a kind of. Uh, pattern here of recommending things that are that are <laughs> difficult or whatever but um but uh but I'll, I I really admired this series a great deal mm-hmm. nice mm-hmm. uh
0: yeah I'll second it's a, it's a hard watch
1: mm-hmm. like
0: mm-hmm. um there are hard watches for me that I can um I can like I can watch back to back I can binge and this is not one of them I've had mm-hmm. to pace myself on this one for sure mm. um uh okay, my freak out is um we launched a hotline. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um yeah. so we're recording this on Friday. The hotline is launching on Monday. By the time this comes out, I don't know what <laughs> is going to happen. But like I'm just freaking out this week about how amazing yeah. the team is about how it's taken us a year to get this hotline up and running. And I should probably tell you what it is, although you probably have have heard it because if I do my job, I will record uh, little bits to include in this in this episode, but um, it's the Games and Online Harassment Hotline. It's an emotional support, uh, resource and hotline for folks in the U.S. Um, who consider themselves a part of gaming spaces. So whether you are, whether you make games, you play games, you're a streamer, you are a competitor, um, in the press. Your my mom who plays Candy Crush on her phone. Anyone can text in and get uh, a little bit of emotional support. Um, and you know we really want to start encouraging help seeking behaviors in this industry and mm-hmm. and largely um, in general because I think there's a lot of. Um, There's a lot of work we need to do to create less abusive and toxic spaces. And we want to contribute just a little bit more to helping folks in games um, feel like they have some support and some um, resources. So if you want to know more, you can go to gameshotline.org. And you can learn more about the hotline. You can find out how to text in and get. And you can also find out how to get involved, whether you want to just help us spread the word, because uh, the hotline is only useful if the people who need it can find it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and if you want to do some live streaming for us or charity streaming for us, we just created a streamer packet <laughs> for people. So yeah, I'm, I've am i definitely been in the weeds big time this week trying to get the word out, or last week, I guess, at the time of recording, whatever, when this comes up. Um, so that is, that's what I'm freaking out about. I feel a little selfish having my freak out be, um, this hotline, even though, you know, I still think it's a big thing, but I'm going to give you one more. Um, just I'm plowing through books, uh, really quickly. And so I feel like if I don't freak out when I'm done with the book, you're just never going to hear about it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and also I'm plowing through books so quickly that please give me your recommendations. Um, I love genre books, sci-fi. Um, and I, I love, um, I love memoirs. I like listening to memoirs. So, you know, send me your recs. But I just finished a book called Jade City by Fonda Lee. And here's Mm. what I'm going to say about this book. I am precious about my book recommendations. And so this isn't like top of my list, favorite book I've ever read, blah, 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 but it's very readable and it's super engaging so much so that like when I got, it's, it's a big book, but when I was about halfway done, I just like Got through the whole thing that weekend. Like, I couldn't put it down because I was so fascinated by the character development and the world and everything that happened in it, even though I don't particularly care about these types of topics. And so, mm-hmm. Lee describes the film, the, the book as the God, the author describes it as the Godfather with magic and Kung Fu. It is very much like a organized crime family rivaling other crime families, um, like with a Kung Fu movie. So (laughs) that might sound super appealing to folks. And if it does, this is your book. Um, the, the sort of magical element to it is that in this world, jade is a, um, a really um, precious commodity that will endow the wearer with enhanced abilities. And you can only wear jade if you have a particular like, genetic background that will let you get, get those abilities. Otherwise, you'll get sick and you'll, um, and you'll die like you'll mm-hmm. you'll basically uh, lose your mind. So it, there's a lot that she's playing with around the access to jade, access to um who's who controls the city and what parts of the city and that sort of thing. So um very readable. It feels kind of like um I would describe it a this I'm not trying to be reductive um or or dismiss it. It won a lot of awards, very highly revered. It felt a little bit like a vacation book for me, like a book that you can just like get through. That's like Um, easy to read, but still super engaging with a lot of interesting ideas. Does
1: Mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. I just, I don't want to feel like I'm disparaging it, even though I'm just like, it wasn't exactly the types of topics I generally care about in my Mm -hmm. literature. But, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, if that sounds like your kind of thing, please check it out. Um, all right. All right. You can submit your own Freakout at FeministFrequency.com slash Freakout, F-R-E-Q-O-U-T. I don't know why I'm laughing. That was just such a jarring... Uh, <laughs> so Sorry to be jarring, y'all. Thanks so much for listening to Feminist Frequency Radio and stay tuned for the freaking After Party, which is only available to backers of this podcast, which you can learn more at Patreon.com slash Femfreak. This show is engineered by Rob Parra. Carrie Stimson provides technical support. Artwork by Jamie Varon, and our intro music is by Phil Circus. Thank you so much for checking us out, and we will see you next week. Later. Bye.